Let's begin. The gateway to liberation for the Buddha lies in understanding the kind of mess we're in and how we got into this mess in the first place. When you read accounts, and there's many different accounts in the early texts, particularly this vast, rather voluminous collection of texts, which represents pretty well early Buddhism called the Pali Canon, when you look into these texts, you find different accounts of the Buddha's awakening. And his awakening generally consists of an understanding of how the mess of destructive living came about. So in this tradition, you know, we spend quite a bit of time unpacking how we got into the problems that we have. The impetus behind the whole of the Buddha's own search was driven by, in a way, a sense of dissatisfaction about the way he was living and what he was seeing around him in a very, very early text, which is called the Sutta Napata, which probably represents the oldest strata of the Pali Canon and probably comes very close to some of the words of the actual Buddha himself. I don't ever say these are the actual words, but they probably come very close. When I was going through it recently, because I was doing a translation of it, I came across a passage which really struck me as being so germane to the Buddha's whole direction and why he did what he did. And let me read this passage to you and then perhaps I'll talk about it a bit. Fear comes to one who embraces violence. Look at people quarreling and arguing. Let me tell you of the strong agitation that I felt seeing people struggling like fish in shallow water with enmity towards one another. I became fearful Wanting a safe place to shelter, I suddenly understood and saw that the world lacked substance and there was not one part of it that was changeless. Seeing people trapped in this mutual enmity, I grew dissatisfied. Then I saw buried in their hearts an arrow, a barb, that was difficult to perceive. It is this barb that impels people to run in all directions. Once it is pulled out, the running ceases, as does the inevitable exhaustion that accompanies it. It almost sounds like modern life to me. (laughs) Particularly the last people, about people running in all directions. The Buddha is talking here, obviously, and this relates very much to what we were saying last night, relates to the barb or the arrow of craving, the arrow of desire conflict in our world I don't think has ceased. In fact, if I gave you a kind of brief description of the Buddha's India, well, it was a a description of a place that was full of conflictual elements, conflicting religious parties, conflicting states, uh, a time of economic instability. I mean, it has very close resemblances probably to other periods of history, in particular the period of history at the moment. You know, so what impels the Buddha's own journey is the recognition of what, in some senses, is fueling this process. In other suttas, he says, I look around the world and I see everything is burning. 
You know, this is a very famous sutta. The sutta is a discourse, if you don't know what that is. And there's very famous discourse, even quoted by T.S. Eliot in The Wasteland. In this famous discourse, he says, everything is burning. I see everything around me burning. I see it burning with the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. He says, the nose is burning, the eyes are burning, the ears are burning. Everything is burning with greed, aversion, and delusion. In a nutshell, there's our problem. It's a lot of the time in the teaching is spent actually unpacking greed, aversion, and delusion and the consequences of it. The consequences of living steeped in greed, aversion, and delusion is destructive patterns of life. Now, I don't want to sound too pessimistic because obviously not everything is coloured by that. In fact, this path would be impossible And liberation would be impossible if we didn't have the elements already within us. Um, The seeds, albeit rather nascent at this moment in time, that will be hopefully germinated and will lead to a flowering in our life that is the flower of awakening, of waking up to things. Now the reason why, for example, as we are on this retreat, why we can develop friendliness why we can incline our minds in these ways, develop metta, develop karuna, karuna, compassion, develop and actually observe joy in life, is because these things are already present in our lives. They're often expressed in very narrow ways. I don't know if you perceive that. We express them in very narrow ways. You know, our Our friendliness often is down to literally friends, family, sometimes not even family. (laughs) Families are difficult, as we probably all know. Um, But it certainly gets a very circumscribed number of people it gets uh, exhibited to. Compassion sometimes, we surprise ourselves when our hearts are, are stirred by sometimes some of the terrible things we see going on in the world. But generally speaking, our compassion, again, is fairly limited. Our joys often go unrecognized. We live, perhaps, often in states of ingratitude, not states of gratitude for what we possess and the small joys, not the massive things, but the small joys that we possess in our lives. So these things are already present, and I think it was the Buddha's genius to recognize that these things were already present. You've all had these things. You've all had your moments of intense friendliness, intense kindness. You've all had compassion. You've all touched joy. You've all probably inhabited at some point in your life some degree of calmness. And on occasions you've had insights as well. So none of the stuff that we're talking about really here are in a, in a sense what I would call Buddhist. Yeah. There's a tendency to want to be sort of proprietorial with these things. Actually, they're not Buddhist. Actually, if these things exist, if all these elements exist, including the big word of these days, the word mindfulness, which is one of the antidotes to a lot of these destructive forms of living, all of these are not Buddhist, they're human. And I think this is one of the things, uh, certainly that this figure who we call the Buddha recognized. 
Um, I don't actually like the term the Buddha, although I use it consistently because everybody understands that. Um, when we look at the text, it actually goes under the name Bo Gotama, which really just means Mr. Gotama. <laughs> yeah. Very rarely is he referred to as the Buddha. I mean, I can count on the fingers probably of two hands, no more. Um, references where he's referred to as the Buddha. He certainly never refers to himself in that way. But that's beside the point. <laughs> this figure, uh, part of his genius is the recognition, of course, that we have these traits within us and that we all have these traits within us. We all have these attitudes of mind that can be developed. However, we have to understand, in a sense, what is blocking, what is inhibiting, what is obfuscating the development and the recognition that we all have these qualities. Sometimes I think it surprises us. It certainly surprised the poet Walt Whitman, because he wrote once in his journal, he said, I looked inside myself and I didn't realise I had so much goodness in me. <laughs> you know? And I think it can take us by surprise. You know, when our hearts are stirred, when our minds are inclined to the wholesome as opposed to the unwholesome. And note the words I'm using, wholesome and unwholesome. In this tradition, we don't tend to use the words good and bad. They get used occasionally. You know, the Buddha uses the word papa, which means bad on occasions. But in general, he refers to things as being skillful, unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome. This kind of takes the pejorative sting out of it, you know, the sting of wanting to beat ourselves up for being bad people. You know, um, this is not a tradition that really thrives on that at all. This is a tradition that thrives on recognising that we all, out of what I would call, and perhaps I'll unpack this a little, a degree of woundedness in our lives, we all do unwholesome things. Yeah. Dependent on the degree of woundedness, dependent on the degree of dukkha, of suffering that is present in our lives, often depends on the amount of unwholesomeness we like to spread around. And I say that deliberately because one of the things I think, um, perhaps it's rather irritating, but we live in a world with others. You know, have you ever noticed that? <laughs> You know, there's those irritating people outside, you know, who keep impinging on my life. Um, and because we live in this world of others, of course, if we've got misery and unhappiness in our lives, well, what do we like to do? We like to spread it around. Yeah. Now, joking apart and jesting a little bit around this, but because we live in this world with others, we do actually inflict our woundedness, our pain on others, our angers, our resentments, our irritations. And unfortunately, it usually gets directed at the people who we sometimes care the most for. Yeah. This is the paradox about it. Um, occasionally, it will get directed at others. And, of course, we experience it ourselves as being the objects of you know, the anger, the frustrations, the irritations, the worries, the anxieties, all the things that are indicative of the wounded state that we are often in. And I'll let you into a little secret. There's nothing personal in this. Yeah. When we are directing it around, often, unfortunately, it's the people close to us who get it because they're close to us. We get it often from people who are close to us 
because we happen to be close to them. You know, and I think one of the things that's, that happens continuously in our lives, and this I'll speak a little bit about a little bit more, is that we take things far too personally. Yeah. It's like every thought that passes through our head, because it passes through our head, almost has a claim to truth. Yeah. Have you ever noticed that? I'm thinking it, it must be true. Yeah. So one of the things we're asked to do in these practices, and I'll speak more about this as we go through the week, is actually to start to suspend belief in the truthfulness, the, the, the veridical nature of our thoughts. We're asked to suspend that to decrease our patterns of reactivity, of being caught up in that belief that somehow what is going through my head is intensely personal and therefore I must express it because it's true. Often we are the objects of other people's belief that what is going through their heads is truth as well. And note often how painful that feels. But again, even when it's directed at us, we often take it far too personally. What we're doing is adding something into the whole equation of our experience that doesn't need to be there. And this thing that we add into the equation of our experience is what we call self. But before I talk about that, I want to go back a little bit, go back into the sense of woundedness. Because what the Buddha is really trying to get us to see, or Mr. Gotama is really trying to get us to see, is that we operate in this world out of these two senses of woundedness and confusion. The confusion has led to the woundedness more often than not. Yeah. If you notice when we're born, when you're children, we have no ground rules. Nobody gives you know, something called life a user's manual. You know, we don't get that when we're born. We don't get any guidelines apart from people who are often as confused as ourselves. These are called parents. <laughs> yeah. I was joking with the previous group that was in here, you know, what we basically get as a, as a, as a doctrine is confusionism. <laughs> you know, this is the way we live. We are, we are, in a sense, living the confusion, not just of our parents, but of our societies, um, of our time, of our socio-historical period, we're living the confusions that says this is the right way to live, this is the way to be a person in this world, this is the way to establish yourself, this is the way to be something. You know, these are all of the, the these are all the proffered things which are within our societies and within our lives to try and establish as a somebody or something in this world. You know, one of the great things that we're kind of fostered from quite an early age is being a self. Establishing yourself as a self in this world. 
having strong opinions. In fact, aren't we very dubious about those that don't have strong opinions? Now, the Buddha actually basically lumps all of this in with delusion. This is deluded ways of living. Um, And some of the things that we're specifically deluded about, some of them I mentioned last night. One of the things we're particularly deluded about is permanence, impermanence. Part of our life, part of our search for security and identity is basically placed in the idea of things being permanent. If you have a relationship, actually one of the last things actually we look for in the other person, unless it's something bad they're doing, is change. I didn't opt to live with you for change. I want you to be the same person. (laughs) But have you noticed how people change on you? There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, I think it's very sad, the kind of pictures we get sometimes of people who live together for long periods of time, 30, 40 years, roll over in bed one day, look at their partner and say, you've changed. <laughs> you know, this is very sad. You know, we look for permanence, in, certainly in relationships. We look for permanence in the world. We look for stability in the world. This provides us with our sense of identity and security in this world, but uh, what the Buddha is giving us a picture on is that all that security and that search for identity is basically based on shifting sand. It will last for so long, the edifices and the structures that we basically inhabit and erect for ourselves to inhabit are based on something which is shifting. Yet, we still continue this search for permanence, looking for something which is going to provide us with the senses of security that we're often looking for. Remember what I was saying last night, of course not all change is threatening in that way because sometimes it works for us. And we happily embrace that when change works for us, but reject it when it doesn't. Now this relationship of looking for permanence in the impermanent, the Buddha calls, well, he actually calls it in Pali, a vipalasa. It's a lovely word, I'll explain it in a minute. But translated roughly, it means a distortion in perception. Our perception is distorted. Our, fact, our eyes can't see impermanence. Most of the time, what it's looking for is permanence. Yeah. The word vipalasa. Let me just explain the etymology for this. It literally means to pick up something, twist it around, and throw it back down again. (laughs) So we're actually seeing this stuff all the time. Impermanence is sort of shouting at us in life. Yet, here we are, we pick up what is impermanent, twist it around, and look for permanence in it. (laughs) That's the position that we're in. Now, this is just one example. It's a, the reason I'm going on so much about it, and in a sense, it's a continuation from last night, because I said quite a lot about impermanence last night. This is one of the big problems that we have. This is part of our confusion, is that we look for something that isn't there. And as a 
as an actual resultant of that looking for something that isn't present, then there is a mismatch, isn't there? If the world is doing one thing and our perception is looking for something else, there really can only be one result, unhappiness. That is the only result psychologically from that. If the world is doing one thing, I am looking for something else, and I don't actually see what is in front of me, then the resultant is, to use this word I said, that really must be naturalized rather than um, than translated, because none of the translations do it justice, then the resultant is going to be dukkha. An unhappy state, a painful state, can be actual suffering as well. But anything on that spectrum from minor irritation all the way through to out and out suffering. This is the resultant of it. Now the Buddha talks not just about impermanence, but he talks about other distortions of perception as well. But let me just say one other thing about this business of impermanence and why, in a sense, I'm kind of hammering this because the Buddha hammers it and you know, and I think it's such an important one because obviously so much suffering results from it but that it actually, in a sense, intellectually and cognitively, it's not that difficult to understand, is it? Yeah? It's not difficult to understand. None of I don't think there's probably a person in this room doesn't understand impermanences written into the world. Yeah? Now, and it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad at this stage. Impermanence is written into the world. Yet when the bad impermanence happens to us, we are still left saying, why me? Why has this occurred to me? As if you know, the world has singled you out in this particular way. You know, the, the kind of finger of fate has got you. you know? Well, it's happened because... Things are impermanent. Things are not certain. There is no certainties in this world, and yet we search for certainties. We search for something in which we can build our lives on, which we can believe in and be certain of. Yet there is absolutely no certainties in this world. You know, that thing I said last night about the Tibetans, you know, there's one thing that's certain. You know, perhaps there is one thing that's certain, death. One thing is absolutely uncertain, when? Yeah. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Yeah. In the sense of getting us to come back into this moment, getting us to come back and to be living rather than projecting. You know, projecting into a future, projecting back into a past and not actually being present here. We live in the Western world, and the Western world seems to be full of much more certainty, say, than developed worlds, undeveloped worlds, or developing countries. I always remember uh, a funny situation in in India once when I was was living there. I was staying in Delhi, and I'll just give you a little anecdote about this, uh, of how little certainty there is. And, you know, things in the West work reasonably okay. We might complain about buses and trains and things like that. Completely different ball game in India. Um, and the centre I was staying in I was just staying for a few days I had something to do in Delhi and there was a guy who came in from Switzerland he wasn't Swiss but he was English but he lived in in Switzerland for a large number of years 20 years or something like that 
And so he was absolutely wedded to the idea that things worked perfectly. <laughs> you know, it's not by any coincidence this is the country of cuckoo clocks. <laughs> you know, and mechanical things that work very well. And, well, about, to cut a long story short, in about two days of having been in Delhi, which is pretty chaotic, he was effectively going through a nervous breakdown. <laughs> so we decided to club together to put him on the overnight train because we said there's these kind of Tibetan guys up in Dharamsala. Um, and it's much, much cooler, less chaotic. The Tibetans are not nearly as frenetic as the Indians. And we decided to put him on the overnight sleeper up to Patankot and then he could get the bus up to Dharamsala. Yeah. So we got him down to New Delhi Station. Found his sleeper, first-class sleeper, going up overnight. Yeah, and it's, I don't know if any of you have been in India, but it's quite a business trying to find your sleeping car in India. But we found his sleeper, we got him into his car, and we stood on the platform, waving him goodbye, and the train pulled out and left his carriage behind. <laughs> Two days later, he flew back to Switzerland. I mean, that's a very kind of simple story about lack of certainties uh, and what can actually happen in life. Now, unfortunately, a lot of our lack of certainties lead to much more disastrous results than that or can do. Um, but I think it shows you that you know, we place a lot of faith in regularity. We place a lot of faith in things being certain and there for us in many ways. I think going to another culture, living in, a developing, in the developing world, in developing countries, often puts this much more in perspective for us. So this is one of the distortions of perception. This is looking for the permanent in the impermanent, which I think we all can feel bound to. That, as I say, we can understand impermanence quite simply, you know, it's not difficult to get your head around, isn't actually indicated in living it. Yeah. I often say that you know, when I see a group like yourselves, people are going, yes, everything is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. Yeah. And you're nod sagely to this, but when you lose your pen, <laughs> when the car doesn't start, yeah, it's a completely different matter, and, and I'm not talking about tragedies here, I'm just talking about mundane things, breaking down, not working, not doing the things they should do. Uh, in fact, the ghost story writer M.R. James had a wonderful title for one of his stories, he called it The Malice of Inanimate Objects. <laughs> yeah. They seem to exhibit a malice to us, they don't do what we want them to do quite often, or they get lost, they get mislaid, they get stolen and do all the things that they do. You know, they almost have secret lives of their own, <laughs> which are out there to thwart us. So, not difficult to understand, much more difficult to embody that understanding, to literally to see it, you know, to see impermanence, to see the impermanent in impermanence. Yeah. not to be wedded to the idea of looking for certainty because that is going to lead 
to distress. One of the other distortions of perception that the Buddha spoke about, and again, we haven't moved a million miles away from last night, the kind of introduction I was giving last night to some of the problems, was what he called looking for pleasure in the painful. In other words, looking for something pleasurable in dukkha. In something which is actually going to cause us pain. Looking for pleasure in the painful. I don't think we need to stretch our minds too much to see actually a lot of behavior is that. We, We look for ultimate pleasure, perhaps even, dare I use the word, we might even look for happiness, which that for which the things we look for it in are incapable of delivering it to us. Yeah. Now, I spoke a lot last night about you know, our craving for sensual objects, for things in our lives, things to fill up the, the void of... You know, of craving that is there, which is a response to the pain which is often experienced within life, the difficulty which is within life. And therefore we go out and we look for it in things which are impermanent, uncertain, and what the Buddha calls subject to birth and death. What he means coming into existence and going out of existence. When we hear these words, birth and death, you don't have to take this literally. These are metaphors. You know, they come into existence and they go out of existence. You know, we look for them, and in one of the texts, he gives a wonderful um, series almost of you know, 5th century BCE status symbols. You know, lands, cattle, slaves. Um, your, I don't know, I suppose for transport, your, your newest model elephant. Uh, gold, silver, all of these things. Now, these are the status symbols of his time. And he's talking about people going out and placing their trust in them, looking for them to give them what they're looking for. Now, we might call this some degree of contentment, some degree of peace, perhaps happiness. I think there's many words that we can use in this search that we have for looking for something that will give us what we want. But he says we look for it in the very places that can never ultimately deliver it. We look for it even in others. Yeah. We look for others to give us happiness. Now I'm not saying others are pain, but we look for others to give us something. To give us affirmation, to give us identity, to give us you know, uh, to give us happiness. I've said so many times in this room, I think one of the big things, it's almost a pressure that's laid on a relationship that can become its death knell because it's such a heavy burden it is almost to point the finger at somebody and say, make me happy. Yeah. It's almost an impossibility. Notice one of the things that's going on here in talking about this, looking for looking for happiness, looking for pleasure in that which is ultimately, again, changing and therefore going to have a degree 
of dissatisfaction attached to it. One of the things that we are generating continuously is when these things are changing, when we're looking for something that to give us happiness externally, then we're going to find dissatisfaction. Even with the best will in the world, your most loving partner will not be able to give you happiness. They can be a contributory factor, but they cannot give you that which you search for. Happiness can only arise out of a negotiation. And actually, with two people, it's a negotiation of change. Two changing others who have to learn to negotiate that change and development that will occur if you're together for any number of years. And this is the field of human relationships. When we place it on objects, well, those are going to change. They get broken. They get damaged. They finally fall apart. Whatever it is, whatever we've placed our, our... kind of trust in to be there for me often will fall apart even if it's something that we're trying to accumulate to give ourselves identity and I think of the world I've inhabited at times in the world of academia for example knowledge understanding of things well memory starts to fade it starts to go Um, and then that starts to drop away, that sense of identity. Whatever role we take up for ourselves, which I think is going to give me ultimate fulfillment, well, whatever it is, you're going to become an X one. <laughs> yeah. You're going to become, I don't know, an X teacher, an X president, an X whatever it is. Yeah. These are roles that drop away. They're there for part of our life and they drop away. Yet, we look for happiness, pleasure within that, which is ultimately unsatisfactory. It's not to say, don't do it. It says, don't actually look and invest these things with what they actually can't give you, what they actually can't deliver to you in the end. A more difficult one, which might, might take a little bit more time, might spill over in tomorrow night. We look for self in things which don't possess self. In a sense, this is on the spectrum of what I was saying earlier on, of actually we put the personal into something where there isn't anything personal in it. The self, to cut a long story short at this moment, kind of, get straight to the point here, the self is not a thing for the Buddha. Because if we begin to examine ourselves, we will find that there is nothing fixed and continuous. And I would actually say that's wonderful news. Because if there was something fixed and continuous and it happened to be very disagreeable and extremely grumpy and rather stingy, it couldn't change. (laughs) Yeah. And we would be stuck in this whole exercise of doing what we're doing and engaging in what we're engaging in would be a pointless exercise. 
but obviously not because you know what we begin to discover in this journey which is partly the meditative journey but is also an ethical journey as well as we discover there isn't any fixity to who I am and who you are hence the reason if I'm looking for somebody not to change then we're kind of on to a loser here we're not going to get that you know, we're changing um, we're changing ever since our youth and we'll continue to change up until the point that we die you know, in the modern world we might call this something like the plasticity of self we talk about the plasticity of the brain well the plasticity of the self is equally as powerful you know, there is no fixed underlying thing which we can hold on to in fact, the short story writer, Catherine Mansfield, some of you might have read her short stories, a New Zealand short story writer, friend of Virginia Woolf, um, she said she was very perplexed by this phrase, be true unto yourself. She said, because when she looked inside herself, she said she felt like a concierge in a hotel with 100 guests. <laughs> you know, and I think this is actually more to the reality of who and what we are. We are not something fixed, but something which is, in a sense, like that hotel, possessing many, many different voices. Many, many different voices. That Ultimately, we cannot pin down to one thing for ourselves. We look for self in that which doesn't possess self. You know, we look for that within others that, you know, I don't know if you've ever squirmed when somebody says to you something like, I know the sort of person you are. Have you ever squirmed at that? <laughs> you yeah. You're all, actually, even slightly worse, you're that kind of person. <laughs> now, you're a calm person. Everything's going, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, this is our attempt to try and pin something down. We also look for fixity, even in the inanimate. It sounds very strange in English to talk about self of inanimate objects and the world around us. But really, it's looking for the kind of essences of things. You know, this, this is what makes, I don't know, this particular vase beautiful. It possesses an essence which is the beautiful. This picture has something which is the beautiful. That over there is the ugly. And I know it by its essential nature. It is ugly. It's horrible. Yeah. And the Buddha is saying, actually, this is not true. These are conventions. There is nothing within that thing that I can possess, just as I cannot possess the other by trying to encapsulate it in... You know, a formula that says you're this type of person, well, actually the objects around us are just conventionally beautiful, conventionally ugly, or whatever other adjective we want to lay on them. That's all. Yet notice again what we're looking for is fixity. I hope you're getting the message by now. That below everything... There is this kind of search subtly for certainty. Certainty is about ourselves, certainty is about others, certainty is about the world we live in, and actually these are distortions of perception that lead us on a false journey. Yeah. The self, trying to establish the self, is a false journey. Yeah. 
from the Buddha's perspective. In fact, many people in India of his time were doing exactly that. They were looking for something, he said, that just did not exist. Now, the truth of this is not to be discovered in reading words, hearing people speak, like myself, or even in his days, hearing the Buddha speak. He says, the truth of this was to be found by examining our own experience. By beginning to look at our own experience, we will see, rather than seeing being something static, we will begin to perceive flux. We'll begin to perceive, actually, the beauty of the changing. Now, interestingly, the history of philosophies, both West and East and religions, has been the search for something which is unchanging. For that thing which doesn't change. That was called, you know, truth, beauty, the real. That's one of the other names that's given to it. Um... This was so much so that the philosopher Nietzsche in the 19th century said that the whole history of philosophy, both East and West, had been the revenge against time. Because anything that was real was considered to be outside of time. Yet anything for the Buddha that's real is inside time. It's within time. It's within the difficulties of living our changing lives, our changing environments, and all of the difficulties that these give rise to. We're in constant, or should be, perhaps in constant negotiation with our environments, with our relationships, with our partners, of living in our societies, in our world, rather than... And here's a destructive way of living in constant argument with it. Now, this is not, you know, it's not a passive stance to say that we don't fight injustice where we see injustice, where we see things that are wrong in our world and try to correct them. But it doesn't mean we have to live in constant argument with everything that is there, trying to argue against the inarguable. Yeah. Trying to pick a fight with change, I know there's only going to be one winner. And it's not going to be me in this instance. Now there's finally one other distortion of perception that the Buddha speaks about, which he says is looking for the lovely in the unlovely. I can think of many instances in the Western world where where we often look look for the lovely, perhaps the beautiful, in what is not beautiful. I can think of many of our medias, for example, where we're looking for something which isn't there. We're actually, again, possibly looking for happiness in the sort of delivery of certain aspects within our society, which actually are not beautiful. Our justice systems, our political systems, which we think are wonderful, are often actually not lovely at all. Yet, because there's no oppositions and no rivals these days, we kind of laud it as being the best. So one of the things that comes out of this is that we should really be examining our perceptions. Really begin to examine our perceptions and, in a sense, catch ourselves out of looking for something in our relationships which cannot be there. Looking for something in the objects that we go after 
to perhaps deliver something that they can never deliver to us. Yeah. Now, I don't want to take away, I said this last night, but I really want to reiterate this, I do not want to take the idea away that there is pleasure. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, none of us in this room are monastics. You know, some of us have done our time, <laughs> but you know, are no longer in those monastic situations. And therefore, you know, it's not excluded the idea of having pleasure in our lives. Yet, one of the things that we will notice about it is pleasure changes. Yeah. It falls away. Yeah. We go back and try to repeat it, and we don't get the same pleasure from something. Um, the philosopher Søren Kierkegaard did a wonderful experiment in a book called Repetition. He said that in, you know, in Copenhagen, he went to see a performance of Don Giovanni um, by Mozart at the Royal Opera in Copenhagen. This was back in the early 19th century. And he said he sat in a certain box, had a certain meal before he went to the opera, dressed in certain clothes, went to the opera. He said, I had a wonderful time. He said the next night he tried to repeat it, dressed in exactly the same, had exactly the same meal, went to exactly the same box, and he said he didn't enjoy it. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. (laughs) That we cannot get exactly the same pleasure. Pleasure is changeable, it's variable, it's evanescent. It rises and it passes away. Enjoy it while it's there, but it's not going to deliver anything in your life uh, which is stable at all. So these distortions of perception can lead us into looking for things which are not there, trying to identify with things and create identities out of things which we cannot create identities out of. The search for ourselves, perhaps I'll end on this note, and then perhaps pick up on some good news tomorrow night. (laughs) I'm telling you all the bad news so far. But the search for selves, I mean, the search for self is, is a strange one. It's a very, very strange one in our lives. We search for ourselves. I want to find the real me. What exactly is that? The real me. I'm the real self. Yeah. And <laughs> there used to be a card around. I actually sent it to my friend who had, had exactly the same name. And it said, um, it had this card of this man climbing up a mountain in the Himalayas um, with a rucksack on his back and a pair of glasses and that. And he says, Stanley went to the Himalaya to try and find his real self. And standing at the top of the mountain was a guy in a pinstripe suit that looked exactly the same as him. (laughs) Now, it's slightly ridiculous, but what exactly are we looking for when we say the real self? Now, the self for the Buddha was a fiction that gave rise to all kinds of problems, some of which I will talk about you know, uh, about in the sense of how we can release ourselves from this notion. Why it becomes use, why it's useful to a certain extent, but we push its bounds of utility and we end up again experiencing pain. The Buddha gives us a very, very graphic image, a very graphic image of the self. He said the self is a bit like a post nailed into the ground, hammered into the ground, to which is attached a dog on a leash, and all the dog can do is run round and round and round it. This, in a sense, is what we have when we have the notion of a fixed self. It's something we run round and round and round and round. 
I think is expressed in English phrases such as, this is the way I am. Yeah? If you ever hear yourself uttering that, even not aloud, but just to yourself, be wary. Yeah? Examine it, investigate it. This is the way I am. Because what it actually generally means is, you know, this is the way I am forever. There is no possibility of compromise here, no possibility of change. I don't actually think that's the way that we are. And tomorrow night what I want to do is explore that and explore different ways of being as a self in this world that don't entail us creating fixity within it. Okay, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.